Please stand for the reading of Scripture. From Proverbs chapter 2. Proverbs chapter 2. My son, if you accept my words and store up my commands within you by making your ear attentive to wisdom, you will apply your heart to understanding. Indeed, if you call out for insight and cry aloud for understanding, and if you look for it as silver and search for it as hidden treasure, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He holds success in store for the upright. He is a shield to those whose way is blameless. For he guards the course of the just and protects the way of his faithful ones. Then you will understand what is right and just and fair, every good path. For wisdom will enter your heart and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. Discretion will protect you and understanding will guard you. Wisdom will save you from the ways of wicked men, from men whose words are perverse, who have left straight paths to walk their dark ways, who delight in doing wrong and rejoice in the perverseness of evil, whose paths are crooked and who are devious in their ways. Wisdom will save you also from the adulterous woman, from the wayward woman with her seductive words, who has left the partner of her youth and ignored the covenant she had made before God. Surely her house leads down to death and her paths to the spirit of the dead. None who go to her return or attain the paths of life. Thus you will walk in the ways of the good and keep to the paths of the righteous. For the upright will live in the land and the blameless will remain in it. But the wicked will be cut off from the land and the unfaithful will be torn from it. These are the words of God and all God's people said. Amen. Maybe seated. I had the privilege of preaching the first sermon of this year on Epiphany Sunday. And my message that day was about God's gift of wisdom to his church and our need to take hold of it and not let it go. And I know all of you that were there that day remember every word I said. And so I can just pick up and carry on. Uh, the topic today will dovetail with that Epiphany sermon as I take up the theme of Proverbs 2, which is the safeguards of wisdom, the safeguards of wisdom. I noted in my previous sermon that the expression of true wisdom in our day is in short supply. And considering the things that have unfolded over the course of these past eight months, I think I'm even more confident that this is true. Utter confusion abounds, both inside and outside the church. Complex moral, legal, and political issues have been thrust upon us, and if we are to be honest with ourselves, I think we would say that we really weren't ready for all the drama. I know I was not. So what do we make of it? How do we respond to this? What do we tell our children? What shall we do to protect ourselves from the onslaught of this cultural malaise before us? Is there wisdom for this hour? I think Proverbs 2 has something important to say, not everything, but something important to say to some of these questions. We must not forget that the church stands alone as the receptacle and repository of the inspired traditions that carry a mandate for a holy life from these ancient sages, the greatest of whom was Solomon, and even from the greater than Solomon, Jesus Christ. 
As the course and bulk of biblical wisdom, the book of Proverbs remains the model of curriculum for humanity to learn how to live under God and before humankind. As a result, it beckons the church to diligent study and application. I hope we can partake in that some today in this sermon. To uncommitted and apathetic youth, it serves as a stumbling stone. But to committed youth, it is a foundation stone. Tragically, the church has, in certain ways, ignored this book, or at least brushed it aside. It's difficult. It's challenging. It's um, often uh, confusing. The book was written for young people as a compass by which to steer their ship of life. And in Proverbs 1, 2, and following, we see the purpose of the book. To know wisdom and instruction. To understand words of insight. To receive instruction in wise dealing and righteousness, justice, and equity. To give prudence to the simple. Knowledge and discretion to the youth. So is there any doubt that our youth and even ourselves need this guiding wisdom from God today? Right now? And so where is the concentrated instruction in wisdom? Wisdom to aid us in this uh, navigation of a morally and socially corrupt environment. Is the teaching of this book systematically and thoroughly taught in our homes and in our church? Are we prepared with this wisdom to lead our families and serve our community? To demonstrate the truth of the gospel in our marriages and homes and our hospitality? Leavening the culture with these kingdom values and graces? Or are we tempted to shrink back? Are we fearful of the risks of commitment? Are we slothful in our own spiritual maturity? For the committed Christian, complacency is really not an option. Complacency is really not an option. The work of the church must go on, and it will take the wisdom of God to do it well. But many, I think, are comfortable with a more passive approach. In his book, A Call to Spiritual Reformation, D.A. Carson laments that when it comes to knowing God, we are a culture of the spiritually stunted. So much of our religion is packaged to address felt needs. And these are almost uniformly anchored in our pursuit of our own happiness and fulfillment. God simply becomes the great being who potentially at least meets our needs and fulfills our aspirations, we think rather little of what he is actually like, what he expects of us, what he seeks in us. We are not captured by his holiness, his love, his thoughts and words capture too little of our discourse and too few of our priorities. End quote. In similar fashion, theologian David Wells reflects on the state of the affairs within evangelical Christianity. And this is pre-COVID era. He says, The vast growth in evangelically minded people should by now have revolutionized American culture. With a third of American adults now claiming to have experienced a spiritual rebirth, a powerful countercurrent of morality growing out of a powerful and alternative worldview should have been unleashed in factories, offices, boardrooms, in the media, universities, and professions from one end of the country to the other. The results should now be unmistakable. 
Secular values should be reeling, and those who are their proponents should be very troubled. But as it turns out, all of this swelling of the evangelical ranks has passed unnoticed in the culture. The presence of evangelicals in American culture has barely caused a ripple. The problem, says Wells, is that while evangelicals have for the most part correct Christian beliefs, for far too many, these beliefs lie largely largely at the periphery of their existence rather than at the center of their identity. At the core, they are hollow men with nothing to ground them. And despite their Christian commitment, they remain largely what psychologists have called empty selves. Have you heard that term before, empty selves? So what exactly is an empty self? Philosopher J.P. Moreland describes it. He says, an empty self is a person who is passive, sense it, busy and hurried, incapable of developing an interior life. Such a person is inordinately individualistic, infantile, and narcissistic in love with themselves. Imagine now a church filled with such people. What will be the theological understanding, the evangelistic courage, the cultural penetration of such a church? If the interior life does not really matter all that much, why should one spend the time trying to develop an intellectual, spiritually mature life? If someone is basically passive... He will just not make time or the effort to read, preferring instead to be entertained. If a person is sensate in orientation, then music and magazines filled with pictures and visual media in general will be more important than mere words on a page or abstract thoughts. If one is hurried and distracted, one will have little patience for theoretical knowledge and too short an attention span to stay with an idea while it is being carefully developed. And if someone is overly individualistic, infantile, and narcissistic, what will that person read if he reads at all? Books about Christian celebrities, perhaps? Christian romance novels? Imitating the worst the world has to offer? Christian self-help books filled with slogans and simplistic moralizing? Lots of stories and pictures? And inadequate diagnoses of the real problems facing the reader? What will not be read are books that equip people to develop a well-reasoned theological understanding of their Christian faith and to assume their role in the broader work of the kingdom of God. Such a church will become impotent to stand against the powerful forces of secularism and and also threaten to wash away Christian ideas in a flood of thoughtless pluralism and misguided scientism. Such a church will be tempted to measure her success largely in terms of numbers, numbers that have been achieved by cultural accommodation to empty selves. In this way, the church will become her own gravedigger, for her means of short-term success will turn out in the long run to be the very thing that buries her. So what makes this envisioned scenario so distressing is that we do not have to imagine such a church, really, Rather, this is an apt description of far too many evangelical churches today. It is no wonder, then, that despite its resurgence, evangelical Christianity has been thus far so limited in its cultural impact. If this assessment is even partially accurate, then it is certainly troubling. 
But what makes this predicament even more personal, for me at least, and perhaps for you, is the raw sting of seeing and knowing that my own traits fit some of this profile of the empty self. I'm guilty of spiritual and intellectual passivity. I'm guilty of not serving the church 100%. But I find comfort in knowing that Christian maturity is a process. And God, through His grace, is not through with me. He's not through with you. He's not through with His church. Nevertheless, spiritual fervor is still the standard. And so we had better develop and implement a more careful, robust, and serious course of action if we are going to be faithful ambassadors for the kingdom of God in this hour. So what we need is not more conferences or camps or seminars, though all of these are fruitful tools. What we do need, ultimately, is a deeper knowledge of God rooted in the truths of Scripture. And if we begin there, our efforts will not be in vain. So I submit that Proverbs 2 provides a needed reminder for us on some of these matters. It is foundation work, so to speak. And I would argue that chapter 2 is the most important chapter in the book of Proverbs. It cannot be missed. It tells the reader how to accomplish the purpose of the book. To know God and to thus have spiritual safety and abundant life. The fear of the Lord, as you know, is the key to wisdom. It's the key to this book, Proverbs 1.7 tells us that. But in this chapter, this chapter shapes the key that opens the book. We can't miss that. Its purpose is to safeguard the youth from the ways of the wicked man, representing easy money, and the wicked woman, representing easy sex, in order that they may enjoy abundant life in God. This material is the foundation of a Christian education. Isn't it wonderful to know that we have a good word from God to safeguard us, to protect us, if we would only listen and heed? So may the youth not squander these truths, may those in their prime not forget it, and may the aged not take it for granted. So let's turn to a look at the text and work through this chapter If you haven't noticed already, on the back of your bulletin, there are some sermon notes there that you can refer to that may help you uh, and give you some framework here. And also, you may want to have the text in front of you as we work through some of these as well. We're going to pay close attention to some features and draw out some implications. So if you don't already recognize it, the book of Proverbs is a literary masterpiece. And sometimes that's hard, that's easy to miss. Um, sometimes we think it's sort of a hodgepodge collection of sayings, right? Well, actually, that uh, it's not hodgepodge, but that collection of sayings doesn't even start, as you know, until chapter 10. The first nine chapters of the book is introductory material and uh, contains two, uh, ten lectures uh, by the father to the son, preparing his heart to receive the wisdom that comes through these proverbial sayings later in the book. So almost one-third of the book is preparing the son's heart to then receive the teaching that comes after. But it's a literary masterpiece, and if we take the time to study its structure and and how carefully it's put together, it won't take long to see this. And we don't have the time really to look at all the literary features of even this poem, 
But I hope you will get a glimpse of what I'm talking about as we briefly work through chapter 2. So in masterful literature, style matches substance. Style matches substance. So this poem is divided into halves. And you'll see this reflected on the outline. Each half is then divided into three into thirds, into three stanzas, with a four-four-three pattern. Four verses, four verses, three verses, making eleven verses, and then the next half, four verses, four verses, three verses, eleven verses. So this careful craftsmanship, this, this structure of the poem itself, invites us, as a reader, to pay careful attention to the details. None of this is accidental. This is carefully thought through, carefully crafted. In fact, when you read this, understanding the structure, you actually can feel the order. It's tangible. And think about that. This book is about conforming ourselves to the moral order of Yahweh's universe. That's what wisdom is. Doing things God's way. Living life rightly before God. So the, the content matches the form. You can feel the order. The book is teaching us about conformity to the moral order that God upholds. And so the style of its content reflects a literary order that matches that theme. It's brilliantly put together. And we can't miss that. Every word is carefully placed. And in the Hebrew, the syntax is exquisite. It's so carefully crafted. It's a masterpiece. So we can't miss that. And we want to pay attention to those details. We want to be, we want to do, um, uh, honorable interpretation of this kind of literature. So the outline represents the two halves there. And you see in the first half we have what we would call the root, the root of these safeguards, the production of a godly character. How does this come about? How is a godly character formed in a person that's going to lead to the safeguards that are promised at the end of the poem, ultimately leading to life and not death? And then the second half of the poem really is the fruit of those roots, And the fruit is the purpose. What is the purpose? The safeguards against the wicked man and the wicked woman resulting in life. So in the first part, we see the conditions laid out for doing this. How do we gain a godly character that then we will be protected by? Well, the first condition there in verse 1 is to accept. Right? Accept. We have to accept the words. My son, if you accept my words, that is the first condition. It's a willingness to accept the wisdom being offered to us. We are not coming up with this wisdom on our own. It's something that's being transmitted to us through the word. This takes faith. And I recognize that this is a gift from God. The natural man does not accept it. You cannot accept it on your own. 1 Corinthians 2.14, Paul says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So the person who truly accepts this teaching has evidenced regeneration in his heart. To accept it is a commitment to it. It's not simply agreement, right? It's more than that. So this is true faith, but it requires responsibility and risks. Isn't that what faith requires of us? Responsibility and risks. One cannot learn to ride a bicycle, for example, by watching someone else do it. They have to take the risk of riding to experience it for themselves. They have to accept it. It's an active faith. 
There are, I'm afraid, some Christians today who are professing faith but are not risking the commitment to faithful living and true worship. And we ourselves are not immune to this danger. So let's examine ourselves, our own souls on this matter. Do we accept it? Accepting this teaching in the context of Proverbs comes ultimately from God through the instrument of the parents in the home, the father teaching the son, the mother teaching the son, and is the required condition upon which rest the protections that are promised at the end. So there is a rampant and tragic deception that promises all the benefits of life and happiness and protection without reciprocal covenant faithfulness. So this is a reminder. We have to accept it. The second condition, to store up. This is metaphorical, obviously. You can't store up words. Uh, But what does the metaphor mean? Well, practically, I think, uh, it means to memorize. Just as you would store up treasure in a vault and keep careful watch of it, and even records of how much it's worth, so too, this instruction is to be stored up in your heart. Proverbs was intended to be memorized in its entirety. And in fact, a lot of these literary features that I'm praising today are there to help aid in the memory of this book. The poetic nature of the book, with all its glorious symmetry and rhythm and wordplays and the like, aids us in the task of memorizing it. This is not a teaching that is to be heard in a sermon one Sunday and forgotten by Monday. It is like treasure, and it should be valued accordingly. You can also see the same language in later in the book, in the 30 sayings of the wise, Proverbs 22. It has the same uh, construction of pay attention, turn your ear toward, listen, right? Give heed. So we have to pay attention. We have to store up this wisdom in our hearts. And just as Jesus did when tempted by Satan, as you know, he came back with uh, very quick responses from the book of Deuteronomy. He had stored the book of Deuteronomy, in his heart. But you can't just memorize the words. There's no formulaic response here. And there there never is when it comes to relationship to God. You have to memorize the message, yes, but you also have to memorize it with religious affection. I find it instructive that the Magi, under God's providence, were guided by a star, but the star could only get them so far. Right? Pardon the rhyme there. It got them to Jerusalem, but it could not lead them to the Christ child himself. So to get to the Christ, what did they have to have? They had to have scripture. Well, how did they get that scripture? Do you remember the story? When the Magi got to Jerusalem, they asked the scribes there in Jerusalem, who had counted all the letters of the Hebrew Bible and could have probably recited it in its entirety. They asked, where is he who is to be born king of the Jews? And the scribes replied from uh, a quote from Micah 5.2. And you, O Bethlehem, Ephratah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth to me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose concerning forth is from of old and from ancient times. That's the verse they cited to the Magi. And with that one verse, the Magi found their way to Jesus in Bethlehem, and they worshipped him. Now the irony here is that the scribes who had memorized the whole thing but without religious affection, couldn't even get off the seat of their pants to go five kilometers down the hill to Bethlehem to worship the Christ when they had the word of God the whole time. They were too affluent. They were too comfortable and self-righteous. 
And so this strikes me in some ways as a parable for our times. And we, we should ponder this and remember that storing up and memorizing is not a formulaic way of doing it. We have to love it as well. So in the church, we have the right words, but we often don't have the message they signify. So even if we were to memorize the scriptures, that's not enough in itself. We also have to love them and even more love the one to whom they point. This is what the father means when he's telling the son to store up this teaching. It's a matter of the heart. Memorize it, yes, every bit of it, but also love it with religious affection. Condition three, turn your ear to wisdom. Turn your ear to wisdom. Paying attention leads us to leads to a change in character. Iris Murdoch in her book Metaphysics as a Guide to Morals. Don't be scared of that. Uh, it's a strange title, but uh, I'm going to read a quote from her book. She says something profound about how moral change is affected in a person. Moral change, she says, comes from an attention to the world whose natural result is a decrease in egoism through an increased sense of the reality of someone or something. Now, that's pretty general and a little vague, but but it's interesting in this context. Change of being, the Greeks called this metanoia, is not brought about she says, by the straining and willpower of of a person's uh, will, but rather by a long, deep process of what she calls unselfing. Unselfing. I need to be unselfed sometimes. So what Murdoch describes here as this long, deep process is really the intended result of the command of the father to the son to turn your ears to wisdom. Get outside of yourself and listen to me. Getting our focus off of ourselves and toward the reality of something beyond us. And for the Christian, of course, this is our attention to the word of God that is taught and preached in the context of the church and the home as a means of knowing him in Christ and living rightly before him. This is a condition, a condition of the safeguard. Condition number four, call out. Verse three, call out. Indeed, if you call out for insight and cry aloud for understanding. This condition, I think, is best likened to prayer. When one calls out to God, as we see the psalmist do, for example, he's in a certain mode of prayer. So prayer is an important aspect of gaining wisdom in this way. It is a condition. It is a condition of learning wisdom. A helpful New Testament parallel to this is in the epistle of James. Now, remember, James is writing to a predominantly Hebrew context, and so he's using Hebraic uh, conceptual frameworks in in communicating things. So when he talks about wisdom, uh, this is going to uh, come to bear on what he says in his epistle. So James 1.5, this is a famous uh, passage I'm sure you're familiar with. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. The question here is, what does he mean by wisdom? It is very common to take this passage to mean that if you want God to grant guidance in some matter, some various life decision, like should I take this job or that job? Should I marry this person or that person? Should I buy this house or that one? Uh, you know, we, we take it to mean ask God for wisdom in these matters of decision making, for example. Now, certainly it is legitimate to seek God's guidance in these matters. Don't 
don't hear what I'm not saying. And I think that, that this could be substantiated very easily in other passages of Scripture. But I don't think that this is what James means here. And the reason I don't, among others, is because of how James goes on to define wisdom in chapter 3 of this same epistle. Not to mention the fact that it's, it's Hebraic. And when he mentions wisdom to a Hebraic audience, clearly the backdrop of the Old Testament and the, and the wisdom literature would be in mind. So listen to what he says in, in chapter 3, starting with verses 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So the wisdom James is talking about in chapter 1, I don't think, is the wisdom of God, is not the wisdom of guidance, but rather it's about a person's character. If you lack these qualities, purity, gentleness, open to reason, full of mercy, good fruits, impartial, peaceable, Ask God for these things. Seek out God. Turn your ear to him. Cry out for it. And he will grant you wisdom from above. Condition number five. And the final condition is to seek. To seek verse four. And if you look for it as for silver. And to search for it as for hidden treasure. This takes work friends. You don't find gold on the surface. At least I never have, and I don't think, I don't think the miners did either. Um, the metaphors at work here imply that there is a great deal of effort and sacrifice and sweat that must be expended to get this wisdom. There is no such thing as a passive approach to wisdom and righteousness. So if you're looking for that, you're not going to find it. So this seeking is to be done in a way that matches a search for something lost or missed. That's really the, the nuance of the verb here in Hebrew. It, it's not just, you know, you're, you're kind of halfway looking for something and if it turns up, you, you're glad you found it, but you weren't really going after it, right? This is something that you are longing to regain possession of. That's a different kind of seeking, right? So it's driven by this pervasive longing to find it. So really there is also an emotional nuance here as well. The wisdom from God through the mouth of the Father to the Son is to be valued as highly as a precious metal. It is about love. It is about the loves of a person's heart. It's the pearl of great price. The great Christian scholar Erasmus said, I can speak it by experience as a wise man that there is little good to be gotten by reading the Bible cursorily and carelessly, but do it daily and diligently with attention and affection, and you shall find such efficacy as is to be found in no other book that can be named. So what is demanded in the seeking condition is both a study of wisdom and a love for it. I think you're seeing this pattern emerge as we look at these texts, which can prove to be quite difficult, as you know, but in the end it yields riches. Now, what about the consequences? 
Quickly, I want to mention that these, when these five conditions are met, when we accept, store up, give attention to, call out for it, and seek this wisdom, two things are to follow according to this passage. Right? These will be safeguards. Uh, excuse me. Uh, we'll get a theological education. We'll receive an ethical education. And we will be safeguarded in the end. All right? So if you look in your text, at beginning with verse 5, verses 5 through 11 there, this is really a parallel situation. So notice with me, 5 through 8 talks about gaining a theological education as a result of these conditions. Verses 9 through 11 discuss an ethical education. But notice the parallels between the two sections. So, for example, in verse 5 it says, Then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. This is a summary statement which also matches the summary statement in verse 9. Then you will understand what is right and just and fair. You see how that works? Two summary statements, one about knowing God, one about knowing what is right and just. Then move down to verse 6. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. This parallels verse 10. Right? It's a substantiation of this fact. Verse 10 says, For wisdom will enter your heart. Right? Verse 6 says, The Lord gives wisdom. 10 says, Wisdom will enter your heart. From his mouth, verse 6, come knowledge and understanding. Verse 10, And knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. And finally, verses 7 and 8 match verse 11 in terms of the safeguard that comes from this kind of education. So, an edu- so a theological education, that is knowing God personally, not, not, not scientifically, knowing God personally, knowing the person of God. He holds success in store for the upright. He's a shield to those whose way is blameless. He guards the course of the just and protects the way of his faithful ones. That's the safeguard of knowing God. But that matches verse 11, the safeguard of an ethical education, of having the right character. Discretion will protect you. And understanding will guard you. Now notice, it's interesting that these two truths are held together. God will protect you. Your character will protect you. Well, which one is it? Well, it's both. You can't separate the two. Do you see how this is tied together? And this is even done in the literature itself. If you notice uh, verse 8, when it says, He guards the course and protects the way. Look at verse 11. He protect, discretion protects and understanding will guard. It's a little chiastic formula there, and that's like a suture. That's a suture that ties, literally ties these, these two truths together. You cannot separate them. So we don't ask the question, well, which one is it? That's the wrong way of thinking about it. The Hebrews saw truth in tension. We have to learn to do that as well as we read Scripture. So... Um, God stands behind these truths. When you have wisdom in your heart, your character will protect you. These two things are held together. It's God who protects you, and it's your character that protects you. Because God's wisdom works in and through your character. There is no dichotomy here. And so, it just goes to show, amazingly, how marvelous the literature is, and how the details in the literature actually get us to the theological insights that we are to see The moral lessons are bound up with these things. And finally, once we have a theological education and knowledge of God himself, once we have an ethical education, a character that is formed out of that knowledge, then we have the promises of safeguards. There are wicked men and wicked women there to tempt us 
and to lead us astray. And the same thing's happening in this last verse, very last section, very quickly, and then we will conclude. But you'll notice the same kind of parallel, parallelism is happening here. So in verse 12, wisdom will save you. This is the promise of the safeguard from the wicked man. Okay, verse 12, look down at verse 16. Wisdom will save you also from the adulterous woman. We have two parallel things going on here. So there's a summary of purpose to save you from a wicked man, the wicked woman. Verse 13, who have left straight paths to walk in dark ways. Notice that they left paths that they were already on. This is apostasy, right? These are those who are in the covenant but have left it of their own volition. And we see in verse 17 about the wicked woman. She has left the partner of her youth. A partner there, there's really a metonym for, for uh, husband. And ignored the covenant she made before God. She made a covenant before God, but she's ignored it. This is apostasy. Verses 14 and 15 are a description of the path of the wicked man. They delight in doing wrong and rejoice in the perverseness of evil. Isn't it amazing How much in our culture we delight in the perverseness of evil. Think about what comes to us in the television and even on uh, the radio. I can't even even open Apple Music anymore, right, without seeing something that's uh, utterly disgraceful. Whose paths are crooked and who are devious in their ways. Notice the description of the path of the woman. Surely her house leads down to death and her paths of the spirit of the dead. None who go to her return or attain the paths of life. This is a final destruction. There's no turning back. And there's warnings all through the Bible, of course, Proverbs especially, warnings against the wicked man and for the young man, especially against the wicked woman, woman folly. And we know that in starting in chapter 4, uh, woman folly, that metaphor gets developed very heavily uh, throughout the rest of the first ten chapters. So you see the uh, you see all this is knit together and that our knowledge of God and the character formed in us through his spirit of wisdom protects us from these things, gives us confidence and stability. It makes the church strong and powerful. And thus, in conclusion, you will walk in the ways of the good and keep the paths of the righteous. And we will uh, the upright, it says, will live in the land. And I don't think this is really referring to the land of Canaan. Uh, I think this is referring, I think it's a more general metaphor. Uh, land is uh, always associated with life. And being cut off from the land is associated with death. Land gives life. That's a pretty clear uh, meaning. And I think that's what he's going after here. The upright will live in the land, the land of the living. And the blameless will remain in it, but the wicked will be cut off from the land and the unfaithful be be torn from it. And so in conclusion, we see the trajectory of the message of of Proverbs 2 leading us toward the fulfillment of these promises in uh, the ultimate expression of the person of Jesus Christ, of course. He is the way. We meditate on him He's the one that will protect us and not lose us. He is the one who will deliver us so long as we are faithful to him. So the wisdom that safeguards us is consummated in the wisdom of God and Jesus Christ for the Christian. Christ is the true wisdom of God, Paul tells us. Yet the duties are still the same for us. 
And therefore, we accept Him. We give attention to Him. We call on Him in prayer. And we ask for wisdom to change us, mature us, and we commit our life to Him in faith. We work and we search and we seek to find the riches of His wisdom. And in return, we get life and life abundantly. So this really is about destiny. It's really, it really is about life and death. If the church is going to be a light in this confused and confusing world, we need to get our thinking and living straight and square with the Word of God. Then we march onward back into the world with wisdom to be faithful in teaching our children, loving our spouses, doing our work, loving our neighbors and our enemies, caring for the widows and the orphans, and wearing the name of Christ with honor, unashamed of his gospel, which is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. Amen. Let's pray. Sovereign Lord, you have spoken the world into being by your wisdom. Dispel the chaos and confusion in our hearts and usher in a desire to pursue wisdom at all costs. As we renew our covenant promises around this table now, bring us into right relationship with you through the merits of Christ, your wisdom incarnate. Amen.